my younger sister, Heidi, married uh, a man from Foxborough, Mass. And that was actually my introduction to New England. I had never been to New England until Heidi started dating Jason. Uh, his family's native to New England. His mom grew up in Alston. His dad grew up in Roslindale. And I remember in 2005, uh, Laura and I were just married, and we went to New England for a visit, for a, a tour, just experienced life in Boston. And we, we sat down uh, for Thanksgiving with the Burt family. They're a very musical family. I am not a very musical person, nor am I from a musical family, but uh, I love to be around music. And I remember right before the Thanksgiving meal, I was expecting to pray, and, and this is certainly a Christian family, the Burt family, so we circled up, uh, and instead of praying, uh, Chris, the, the father in the family, led, led us in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And I thought after singing... How perfectly appropriate. We're celebrating Thanksgiving. It's a time of where we would go and, and, and pray and, and praise. And, and here they did that just by singing the doxology before the meal. It's perfectly appropriate. You see, friends, praise is the right response to God's provision. Praise is the fitting, the suitable response to God's provision in our lives. And it is this fitting response that we see in our sermon passage this morning. Praise that results from God's provision. Let's turn in our Bibles to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. In the Bibles we provided on your chairs, you can find Ezra 7 on page 393. Page 393. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would be delighted to give you one in the lobby uh, on the bookshelf closest to the restrooms, there are some hardback black Bibles. You're welcome to take one and give one to a friend if he or she needs one. We're continuing in our series this fall in the book of Ezra, and we've entitled that series, Return from Exile. Return from Exile. Let's read uh, Ezra 7, beginning in verse 11, I'll read through the end of the chapter. So Ezra 7, verse 11 through 28. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. With all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. 
The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, uh, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on anyone of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river. All such as know the laws of your God and those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods, or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. The big idea of this sermon is that praise is the right response to God's provision. Praise is the right response to God's provision. Ezra 7, verses 11 through 28, unfolds in two parts. First, we see provision from the king, and second, we see praise from the priest. Two parts, basic structure, provision from the king, verses 11 through 26, praise from the priest, verses 27 and 28. Provision followed by praise, that is the progression, and it is a healthy one that we need to consider and to practice ourselves. Provision followed by praise, and praise is the right response to God's provision. Now, perhaps you're just joining us this Sunday and you haven't been a part of our Ezra series thus far. Uh, let me provide a little bit of review for you. Last week I preached on the initial verses of Ezra 7. So you'll notice I picked up in verse 11. Well, last week I preached on Ezra 7, 1 through 10, which gives us uh, the introduction to this man Ezra from whom the book receives its name, but you don't actually meet him until three quarters through the book. So we meet Ezra in chapter 7, verses 1 and following, and we see that he is a skillful teacher of God's word, an expert in the law of the Lord who's commissioned by the king of the Persian empire, Artaxerxes is his name, commissions Ezra to go back to Jerusalem to teach people the law of God because they don't know it. They've been in exile as a result of their disobedience to God's word, their defiance of God's law, 
That's what got them into the predicament in the first place. And then by God's grace, moving through one of King Artaxerxes' predecessors, King Cyrus, the people in exile are given permission to return. They can go back to their homeland. And we saw that they go back, but they're without a temple. So the next chapters in Ezra describe the temple being rebuilt. It's rebuilt, but the work of restored worship isn't done. They need somebody to go teach people that they might worship in that temple rightly. Enter Ezra, the expert teacher, the skillful shepherd who comes to teach people the way of the Lord, how to worship him rightly. It's of the utmost importance. And we talked last week, the critical nature of skillful shepherds, of trustworthy teachers to help guide God's people in the worship of God. Now, in order to bring this restoration of worship, we see that Ezra had to make a big request or requests in the plural from the king. We saw this in verse 6 of chapter 7. And the king, Artaxerxes, granted Ezra all that he requested. So evidently, Ezra approached him and said, okay, if I'm going to go back there, I need provision. I need resources. I need permission. I need protection. And so that's what we see in the rest of chapter 7. So verses 11 through 28, which I just read, is the, the granular detail of this provision. And at the last part, we see how Ezra responds to this gracious provision. So let's look at the detail of the king's provision to Ezra to restore Israel's worship in Jerusalem. We see the provision from the king, verses 11 through 26. The author of Ezra provides a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes wrote and gave to Ezra. It would have served as his passport of his letter of recommendation and of his kind of stamp of approval and authorization for Ezra to go back, not to be hindered by officials in the province beyond the river, and to have everything that he needed to do the work of restoring Israel's worship. So this letter details the provision of Ezra and God's people to do the work of restoration of their worship. So verse 11, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. This is his passport. He literally would have carried this letter on his person in the event that he came against opposition on the journey or in the land where he was going. I have the stamp of approval, the king's seal on this letter, granting me everything that I need to do this work. Here's the body of the letter, verse 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, peace. Artaxerxes says he's king of kings. Well, we'll see who just is the, the, the true king in a moment. But this is a Persian title that Persians, Persian kings would use of one another, king of kings. And it speaks to his power over subjugated peoples. The Persian empire was vast, vast. From modern-day Israel on the Mediterranean coast all the way to India, vast, massive empire. He is the one who rules over all of those people who were in subjection to him. The king of kings, he says. 
And now, verse 13, I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. Now, this parallels King Cyrus's decree in Ezra chapter 1. King Cyrus was three kings prior to King Artaxerxes. And in 539 BC, King Cyrus of the Persian Empire allowed the exiled people to go back, the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem to begin the work of rebuilding. And Cyrus says, Ezra chapter 1, verse 3, whoever is among you of all the people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of the Lord. So what Artaxerxes does is just pattern his policy after that of his predecessor. Whoever wants to go can go. The return from exile happened in waves. You might be confused, like, wait a minute, aren't they already back? No. It came in cycles. It came in waves. So some went in 539, and some went much later with Ezra, 458 B.C. So those people went, returned in waves. And so King Artaxerxes does what his predecessor, King Cyrus, says, whoever wants to go may freely go. That's what we see here. Verse 14, for you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Notice here, the king and his cabinet grant Ezra permission to go. The king and his seven counselors, that's his, that's his cabinet, or his entourage of, of counselors that are around him, they all give the thumbs up to Ezra to go. And notice the work that they authorize him to do, to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God. To make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem is to see about them, to check on how they're doing. It's a shepherding phrase. See how they're doing in their understanding of the law of the Lord and in their obedience to the law of the Lord. That's what's happening here. Notice, this foreign king is granting Ezra permission to shepherd God's people. I am sending you to go check on the spiritual well-being of these people. Do they know the law of the Lord? And are they walking in the law of the Lord? Now, before you think that this king is a follower of Yahweh, the Lord, his motive is, is, is in keeping with the way the Persians ruled their people. They didn't rule with an iron fist. You... you, you must do this, they actually gave their people a measure of religious freedom, which is why they let the exiles go back in the first place. Because they saw in the people's well-being, so would the king and his kingdom have well-being. You see? They, they, they ruled with a measure of, of freedom to, to the people that were under the king's watch. This king is granting Ezra permission to shepherd God's people, to go and see about them, to make inquiries, to ask questions. How are they doing spiritually? The role of a shepherd is always to make inquiry of God's precious sheep. This is the role, part and parcel of being a shepherd of God's people is to check on God's precious sheep. And so at our church, we have shepherds and we have sheep. Currently, we have three elders, and the basic definition of an elder, according to the New Testament, is a shepherd. You're also a sheep under the great shepherd. So I am a shepherd. I'm also a sheep. 
But I am called by a greater king to shepherd you, as is Dylan Colley, one of our other elders, as is Dave Raffensperger, our third elder, to love you all, to be invested in your life, and to make inquiry. How are you doing spiritually? And so if you're a member of this church, we have a, a formal way of doing that. We just seek to periodically come alongside you, whether it's after a church service or over a meal or at Dunkin' Donuts over a cup of coffee or on a walk around town. Like We are committed to shepherding you. Part of you being a member is giving us permission to shepherd you. And that's the beauty of, of church membership. It's a two-way covenant. We say, hey, I want to hold on to you. And I want you to hold on to me. It's this two-way agreement. If you're not yet a member, we still want to shepherd you, but you've not yet given us permission to shepherd you. That's the reality. So church membership actually allows two people, uh, a church and, and members to come together and say, hey, hold on to me and I'll hold on to you. That's why we really try to encourage church membership because it allows us to have clarity in our commitment to one another and it grants the shepherds in the church, the elders, permission to actually shepherd you, lovingly come alongside you, and make inquiries of your life. We're not spying on people here. Uh, Ezra went there to lovingly seek the welfare of God's sheep. That's what it means to be a healthy member of a church. That's what it means to be a, a, a healthy, faithful elder. It's just to lovingly come alongside God's sheep and ask, how are they doing? Uh, are they healthy? Are you healthy? Are, are you, do you understand God's word, and are you seeking to walk in it. That's, that's what we seek to do. The role of a shepherd is to seek to make inquiries of God's sheep. Do they know God's word and are they walking with the Lord? Not only does this foreign king provide Ezra authorization to go back and to shepherd the people, he also provides resources, verse 15, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia. Uh, the people of Israel also gave willingly to the work of restoration. So the king is offering his royal treasures to support and to adorn the temple. And then people also gave willingly to the work of restoring their worship. We see this in the latter part of verse 16. With the free will offerings of the people and the priests, they vowed willingly for the house of of their God that is in Jerusalem. So lots of people are giving to this work of renewed worship in Jerusalem. Certainly the king and his treasurers, they're giving, but the people of Israel themselves, the returned exiles, they're also giving willingly, free will offerings. That, that does not mean coerce. That's out of your own heart motive. You're giving. That's how God's worship throughout millennia have been, has been sustained the willing offering of God's people who worship together, they contribute that worship might happen. And what does that look like? Well, it's, it's the, the upkeep and maintenance of utilities in a space like this. It's being able to hire pastors, being able to send missionaries, uh, being able to invest in local communities, having an Easter egg hunt, serving free coffee down at the, the commuter rail station on Wednesday mornings. That's all of the worship of God's people, and it takes willing contribution from the people. That's what you see them doing here. Many of the returned exiles freely offered to this work of worship renewal, worship restoration. It was a community effort. That's how it's always been among God's people. And what a joy it is to contribute 
Not out of coercion. Never, never, never. If, if you ever feel coerced to give in this church, it's time for you to leave. Because this isn't a healthy church. The way that God's people give is out of a cheerful heart. Because they want to give. They're moved by God, who is a generous one, who prompts them to give. That's how we give. Freely, willingly. With these resources provided by the king and from the returned exiles' willing offerings themselves, worship could be renewed. Verse 17, the author of Ezra says, With this money then you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Now notice the trust that King Artaxerxes places in Ezra. If there is a little bit of leftover resources... You do what you want with it. I trust you. Whatever seems good, verse 18, whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. Isn't this interesting? Hey, if there's some left over, we're going to trust you to do what's right with it. Oh, trust is such a beautiful thing. Well, where does that trust come from? It comes from Ezra's character, because in verse 10 we read that Ezra sought to study the law of God, to do the law of God, and to teach the law of God. He was a person of high character, a high caliber person who was trustworthy, who knew the regulations and the statutes and the beauty of God's law. Don't steal. That's like key part in the Ten Commandments, right? Ezra walked in the law of the Lord. He was a person of high integrity. And so the king trusted him to do what was right with the leftover. Trust is a beautiful thing, friend. As you, as you walk in the law of the Lord and practice what, what, what is in there, you watch your character grow and mature and watch people around you trust in you. A good and healthy kind of trust. That's what we see here. King Artaxerxes sees the caliber of the man of Ezra and trusts him to do what's right with whatever leftovers there are. The king's provision continues in verse 19. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver them before the God of Jerusalem. Likely these are some vessels that were left over from King Cyrus's degree. Do you remember, we've talked a lot about these vessels of silver and gold that were stolen from the temple in Jerusalem in 586 by King Nebuchadnezzar ransacked the temple, took that back to his temple in Babylon as a way to say, hey, my God is greater than your God, O Israelites, because we've conquered you. We're taking these vessels and bringing them to our own temple. It's a way of saying our God is greater. But then when Cyrus, who then overtakes Nebuchadnezzar in 539, he then releases God's people and says, take the vessels with you. Your God is greater. Take these vessels out of this temple and take them back where they belong. But evidently, not all of them went. Some of them were left behind. And so King Artaxerxes is saying, let's make sure that these vessels that have been given for the service of the house of God, deliver them. Take all of them. Make sure there's no, none left back. Verse 20, whatever else is required for the house of your God, which falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. Trust, credibility. He's giving Ezra a blank check. <laughs> whatever else you need, just take it from the king's treasury. Ezra was a trustworthy servant of the Lord, and a foreign pagan king saw it. Our character is a witness to a watching world. 
godless as that world might be, your character matters. Consistency between the message of your lips and the message of your life is critical. We talked about that last week. Don't live a double life. Live one with integrity. Ezra studied the law of God. Ezra did the law of God. And Ezra taught the law of God. Next, King Artaxerxes addresses the officials who oversaw his royal treasury to ensure that they would be compliant to his command. Verse 21, And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law, the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, salt without prescribing how much, All of this provision is needed for temple worship, sacrifices, grain offerings, bull offerings, ram offerings. And it's the calculations here. I did some study on this. It would have sustained Israel's worship for two plus years. This is generous provision from a foreign king, giving them everything they need to get up and started right. Two plus years it would have sustained the worship. Abundant provision from the hand of a foreign king. Now the key question that we have to ask is, who is the king? Who is the big capital K king? Who's actually in charge here? Who is giving the commands? Well, we see the answer in verse 23. Verse 23, whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. King Artaxerxes himself tells you who is truly in command. It is the God of heaven and his decree that's being made, and Artaxerxes is just falling in line. He knows his place and rank. It's the Lord God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who's behind all of this. It's a beautiful fulfillment of Proverbs 21, verse 1. The heart of earthly kings is in the hand of the Lord. Like a river, the Lord steers the king's heart wherever he wishes. Proverbs 21, verse 1. Rest assured, God is in control of this world, even though it doesn't seem it. God is in control of this world. No authority exists apart from his oversight, Romans 13. The heart of the king, the heart of presidents, the heart of dictators is in the hand of the Lord. And he's accomplishing his good purposes. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Even when culture looks bleak, trust in the Lord. Now, in verse 23, King Artaxerxes seeks to appease the wrath of God by giving to Ezra the priest. He seeks to appease the wrath of God, to ward off the wrath of God by giving to Ezra the priest. But the gospel is actually the reverse of that. We don't appease the right wrath of God toward our sin by giving to God, but rather by receiving from God. It's the antithesis of what we see here. King Artaxerxes sought to appease the wrath of God by giving to Ezra the priest. But we actually find appeasement from God's wrath not by giving to the priest but by receiving from the priest the greatest priest the great high priest 
who was sent as a sacrifice for us on the cross so that God's wrath could be fully absorbed, fully appeased. So as you kind of walk through the contours of this passage, you actually see the antithesis of the gospel. You don't appease God's wrath by giving to him, only by receiving from him. That's the nature of the gospel. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've brought up in a context where you think you have to give or do or merit favor from God based upon what you do. No, that's not the gospel. There's nothing that you could do to ever earn credit, favor, forgiveness from God. I do this illustration a lot with people I'm trying to share the gospel with. Mother Teresa, as many good things as she's done, she's always going to fall short, okay? Her good deeds might be up here. Uh, mine might be down here. Some soiled character might be down here. You know, like, Mother Teresa is always going to fall up short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can never do enough good deeds to tip the scale in our favor before a holy God. We can't achieve it. We can only receive it because God himself sent the provision in his son, Jesus, to do the work for us fully, paid the debt in full, absorbed every ounce of his wrath, and by faith in Christ, we're forgiven. We receive mercy. You can't earn favor with God. You can only receive it by trusting in the provision of Jesus Christ. Now, finally, as we consider the king's provision, we, we see his favor in granting Ezra widespread teaching permission. Verse 25 and following, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. King Artaxerxes is giving Ezra the permission to teach in a widespread way and to delegate this teaching work to others, magistrates and judges, to help in the work because Ezra couldn't possibly do it alone. He's giving him widespread teaching responsibilities that the law of the Lord might be known and followed because in the king's mind, the spiritual well-being of those people that I govern will lead to my well-being. The peace among the people will lead to my peace. Now, there is a perspective that the king has that is skewed. Notice what he tries to do to ensure obedience. What does he do? He tries to enforce obedience. Whoever does not obey the law of your God, the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him. His property confiscated, banished from the kingdom, imprisonment, death. Um, he's trying to enforce obedience. That only works so far, friends. You know this in your own life. If you're a parent, you certainly know this. You cannot enforce obedience. You have to teach and train obedience. Titus chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. God's grace trains us, teaches us, 
to renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. That is a take-home verse. You can't enforce obedience. Obedience can only be trained and taught by God's grace working deeply within your heart. So if you're a parent here, you cannot enforce. You can do some behavior modification for a time, kind of consequences. They need to have boundaries. But if you're only dealing with behavior modification, you're going to create Pharisees whose hearts aren't changed. You've got to pray and plead with God to send his grace deeply into the soils of your kid's heart because it's out of the heart that our behaviors flow. It's God's grace that trains us, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live upright, holy, godly lives in this present age. So the king tries to enforce obedience, but the greatest king, the true king, actually gives us his grace that trains us to obey, teaches us to obey. So provision from the king followed by praise from the priest, verses 27 and 28. In response to this abundant provision from King Artaxerxes, ultimately from the Lord, Ezra is moved to praise. Verse 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Ezra knows the true king who is behind this provision, doesn't he? Blessed be the Lord God, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing into this heart, into the king's heart. Again, Proverbs 21, verse 1. Ezra knows this word. He knows Proverbs. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Ezra also knows that this is a fulfillment of the promise of the Lord. Notice he says, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. All these resources were meant to adorn the temple, to furnish it, to beautify it, which That beautification was a promise that the Lord gave to Isaiah the prophet some 300 years before Ezra, a prophecy that Ezra would have known and studied because he saturated his mind in the the Lord's word. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 7, a prophecy of the future restoration of Israel. The Lord says, I will beautify my house. I will beautify my house. House. What's going on here in Ezra's life is the fulfillment, uh, many fulfillments of that verse in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 77. I will beautify my beautiful house. Ezra knows that's beginning to happen under his watch. Now we know that there's another level of fulfillment on that. The beautification of the house of the Lord did not end at the temple rededication and renewal the house of the lord is ultimately a people a worshiping body that is beautified by jesus the one who invites us into a worshiping relationship it is him who beautifies us by his grace but ezra saw a measure of that fulfillment there As those furnishings came in, the resources came in. And notice Ezra's courage and confidence rises as he sees the unfolding work of the Lord. Verse 28, And the Lord extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And I gathered the leading men from Israel to go up with me. Ezra's courage, his confidence grows as he sees the unfolding work of God before him. 
His courage, his faith to move forward in this work is grounded in God's gracious, generous provision. Trust not in your own efforts, friends, as you serve the Lord. Trust in God's gracious hand that is providing for you, that is sustaining you. Provision from the king leads to praise from the priest. Praise is the rightful response to God's provision. Praise is what Christians will do for all eternity in response to God's provision of his son, Jesus Christ. His greatest gift, his greatest provision is the gift of his son, the Lamb of God, whose sacrifice secures our salvation. This is a sneak preview of what every Christian looks forward to. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. That's what we have to look forward to. People gathered from every tribe, nation, and tongue, a many-colored kingdom, lifting their voices in praise to God and to his Lamb who he sent as a sacrifice for our sins so that our salvation could be secured. That's what it is. For all eternity, we will be praising. Why? Because of God's gracious provision in his son. This is what we have to look forward to, and it will be so satisfying to each one of our souls who trust in Christ. Praise is our right response to God's provision now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your grace. Uh, What a joy, what a gift it is to uh, come together to worship you, to read your word, uh, to reflect on it, to apply it. God, I pray that you would take these truths that we've been able to see, you would drive them deep within our hearts, that your grace would work in those deep soils of our hearts, that you would cause seeds to germinate and sprout up and produce abundant fruit 30, 60, 100-fold in our lives, in our church, in our community in other churches that we will plant, uh, both locally and globally. We we trust in you, God. Uh, Thank you for the gift of worshiping you and for the provision of your son that allows us to do that rightly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.